The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. That's what it is. It's Thursday and it's uh, just after nine o'clock. So it is The Enviro Show. It's the greenest show here on SAFM. And I am Nancy Richards together with Albert Clarsen and together with you. Hope you're going to stay with us right through until 10 o'clock. Well, what we have on the lineup tonight, we're thinking very much sort of heritage. And so we're starting off very, very young. Green Kids is uh, and it's an organisation designed to raise early consciousness and we're going to be talking to brand new director Sarah Bergs to hear about what's going on there. And uh, we'll also be talking to conservation educationalist, if you like. He's Prince and Kuna and he's been working with Sarah. After that, here in Cape Town, the city centre, a group of uh, people thinking agriculturally have formed the Aranjasis City Farm. It's a flourishing concept, from what I understand, in the shadow of the mountain. We're going to be talking to spokesperson Cheryl Ozinski. Then after that, kind of cleaning up, and this week, the 16th to the 21st, is in fact Clean Up South Africa Week. And on Friday, that's tomorrow, it's Recycling Day. And then on the 21st, which is uh, Saturday, it's International International Coastal Cleanup. So we'll be hearing about that one from John Kissar. He's from Plastic South Africa. He's going to be telling us what's happening on our own local co coastline, maybe a little bit of an inside peep into what's happening across coastlines all across the world. After that, while we're hoping, we're either going to talk to Doe Stain or uh, Monique Holtzhausen. They're also from Plastics SA, and they are at a very fancy award ceremony tonight. It's the Best Recycled Product Awards, and they're not answering their phone probably because they're busy clapping and applauding and hearing all about the winners. And hopefully we will get hold of one of them, and hopefully we will also speak to one of the winners, which will be very exciting. We'll be able to congratulate him or her on whatever he she has done. So that's what we've got in the lineup for today. I'm just going to give you a little bit of eco info, however, because as you probably know, that uh, this Sunday it's World Rhino Day, Day. And on that very topic, there's been a lot of information about rhinos just recently. Well, and hardly surprising, with over 650 odd killed this year. But uh, interesting to read about the two Vietnamese rhino horn smugglers who were caught with horn worth three million rand. Well, they were apparently given very heavy sentences, both given 10 years in jail. I don't know how heavy a sentence that is. Is that a heavy sentence? Is that? I don't know. But what's really scary is that in this one, according to research done by WWFSA, is the caliber of a consumer in Vietnam who apparently buy for their family, for their friends, for business partners, bosses, or even government officials. Typically, the sort of person who's buying is a fictional Mr. L, who is wealthy, powerful, and influential. And he may give or receive ground rhino horn, often in a little carved box, making it very, very special. And the other group who are very much into buying it is, uh, is more aspirational. They are those climbing the social ladder, and they're looking to buy it for a prestigious purpose, as well as a, as a cure for terminal diseases or even to reduce the effects of a hangover. 635 killed, in fact, rhinos killed this year, 668 last year in total. Well, if you would like to find out more, check our Facebook page, it's World Rhino Day, or check, and I've put the link up on our Facebook page, that's the Enviro Show on SAFM. And as uh, the sand parks say, the bleeding needs to stop. Here, here. And just whilst we're talking big animals, last week uh, in police in Zimbabwe, arrested six men accused of using cyanide to poison elephants. Uh, at the same time, authorities recovered $120,000 worth of ivory, $120,000 worth of ivory from 17 tusks. 
the men accused of lacing watering holes frequented by the elephants. And what they're doing is very cruel because it does not end with the death of the elephants. So said a spokesperson. We have what we call the fourth generation effect due to the potency of the cyanide. We, uh, the, the, uh, using of, as, as a result of them using cyanide as a poison, uh, what happens is that the animals feed on the dead elephants will die, and those that feed on the dead animals will also die. And it seems that somewhere between 40 and 60 elephants have already died, making it Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe's very worst case of poaching. Isn't that just too scary? Imagine just, you know, the whole sort of ripple effect and all those dead elephants. Yeah. Slightly better news on animals, I, th I think so, certainly maybe not so much if you're a fish, is the innovative fish farm that's housed in a shipping container here in Philippi, producing up to four tonnes of fish a year. Well, the initiative has been shortlisted for a Global Empowering People Award on account of the work that they're doing, uh, giving jobs to people, but also producing that amount of food. Hope to hear a little bit more about that one on this very show. And just quickly on the subject of polluted or poisoned water holes, as we were discussing there, a Free State University professor by the name of Harriet van Tonda of the Institute for Groundwater Studies on the issue of proposed large-scale gas fracking could, he says, that it could have a devastating pollution impact on South Africa's clean underground drinking water. He suggests that it could take less than two months for fracking fluids to contaminate boreholes or even just a matter of days to reach the surface of parts of the Karoo. Little bit scary, and I don't think we've finished with fracking yet. And don't forget on that note or any other note that you've heard about, anything that you'd like to tell us about in green terms here on the Enviro Show, what's happening in your area that's good or bad or clean or that's causing you concern, causing you grief, uh, or what you yourself are doing or what any business that you know is or are doing. If you'd like to congratulate somebody or if you'd like to throw a bit of a, a rant, make it an informed rant, please, but let us know. You can pop us a mail at enviro at safm.co.za. Or send us a message on our Facebook page, which is The Enviro Show on SAFM. That's The Enviro Show on SAFM. The news around your world changes by the minute. University spokesperson Angela Church says they've managed... The Minister Martinas van Skalve visiting the area over the weekend when he fell over a... The report claims that Vavi was involved in the formation... For a loyal listener like you, losing out on the latest news is not an option. To stay in touch with updated news and views, simply tune in and keep up. SABC News, Africa's news leader. The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. And first up on The Enviro Show tonight, it's Heritage Day coming up next Tuesday. I'm sure I don't need to tell you, but if we are to take our heritage seriously from an environmental point of view, I guess we need to engage not just young people, but very, very, very young people. And it's on that principle uh, that you just can't introduce the idea that all species growing and living are important. Uh, you, you have to just introduce the idea that all species growing and living are important, and it's not just people. And you can't introduce that early enough. And I think it's with that in mind that Green Kids, Green Kids Initiative, has been founded. They're based in Limpopo, from where we have the very brand new director, Sarah Bergs, on the line. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Congratulations on your new role. Thank you very much. It's exciting. And yes, yes, very exciting. And I think in you, you've been, uh, you know, this is not your first entree into the world of the environment because I think you worked with something called, or you think you founded something called Nourish before. Is that yes, right? Yes, that, 
Yes, that's right. Nourish actually was and still is my own charity organization, which focuses on community upliftment as well as environmental education in rural communities. Okay. Okay, well, we'll hear yes. a little bit about that from you, but also from Prince, from Prince and Kuna. Prince, are you on the line too? Hello? Prince, Prince, are you there? Yeah, I'm on my line. Good, good. Okay, Prince, we're going to have a word with you in just a minute to find out what you've been doing with Nourish and with the, the particularly the young people in the community. But, Sarah, d- tell us a little bit about you. You're obviously very environmentally concerned that you've got uh, not one but now two <laughs> organisations. What is your story? Nancy, I had an incredibly privileged upbringing. I, I grew up in the Timbavati Game Reserve, one of the most beautiful, prestigious game reserves wow. in the world. Mm. And as so, I got to grow up completely surrounded by nature and surrounded by our natural heritage. So I grew up with an incredible passion for the bush and wildlife, something that I've noticed doesn't get shared in schools and in rural communities. And it was this discrepancy that prompted me to get involved. So, um, how did you? How come you got to grow up in Timbavati? I um, I was a part of a love story. A mom that came out from America on holiday who fell in love with a game ranger working, you know, as a jeep jockey in a local game reserve. And um, I was born there and homeschooled in the game reserve before going into hospitality and later on into conservation myself. Wow, I can feel a book coming on. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. So given that you've had this wonderful privileged background, I mean, you're in a perfect position to to pass it on. So Nourish was born out of the fact that you realised that it was just this sort of education was not happening in schools then. Yes, that's correct. I think there's a lot of funding that gets brought into reserves and overseas tourists and international tourists get to experience a lot of the joy that exists in Africa because they're able to fly in and experience that. And then these children that are growing up possibly 40 kilometers from the Kruger National Park have never actually seen an elephant in real life or a lion in real life. It's only been a source of conflict or danger or superstition. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that's, mm. the, that's the reasons behind yeah. starting Nourish and getting involved now with Green Kids Initiative. Yeah, bit of a mind shift. Prince, talking mind shifts, let's find out a little bit about you. You're in Limpopo. Whereabouts did you grow up and what's what's been your experience of wild, the wild and wild animals? Yeah, I was working at Tandatula before with Sarah. Mm. I was like a gardener. And maintenance. So while I was going to work with elephant research, with Sarah also processing future, and also doing field work, and I was learning a lot at elephant research. Like now, I was always with Sarah doing Nuari's job, like in part of natural job, like nature conservation. Mm. And also, I'm going with Sarah to school to lecture a child about how to plant the trees, how we save the trees, and how they're the best thing in <coughs> to, to, to save the trees. I'll come back to the trees and the children in just a minute, but when you say elephant research, that sounds really interesting. What were you actually doing? Um, we are, we're using elephant research, like we're using collars and GPS. And like they, that elephant, they got their collars. That collars will have to download in a computer yeah. to get a coordinator for that elephant. Then we take that coordinator to GPS. Uh, GPS. So we, we, we drive to the elephant, check some data sheet, write the, the index of elephant. 
So by doing that, if they're wearing collars, you can sort of track where they're moving around? No, I, I didn't do it in a college. I was learning that elephant research. Okay, okay. So let's go back to the schools. Um, I don't know what you knew about elephants, if you were afraid of them, if they you know, seemed to be important to you when you were a child. But when you go to the schools and you tell the children about, the, about animals, what's their response? Yeah, they respond like they need to know about the behavior of the elephant. So we try to tell them how they, they, they behave of the elephant. Because the elephant, they kill some trees, and the trees is the best in the nature conservation. Like they give us the brief, the brief, the fresh brief. Like we get some fresh air. The, the trees, they give us a lot, like a fruit, something like that, and a shade. And are the children interested? I mean, do they respond? I, I, I imagine perhaps if they're quite young children, they'd be interested. Yeah, they, they, it's so easy because some of the children, they tell us that they, did, they wasn't know that they, 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 I mean, the trees, they, they are important because some of the grandmothers, they cut the trees, they make it a firewood. So as well, they can start to go and tell the grandmothers and their mom, they won't cut the trees. The trees is important because they give them a nice life and fresh air. So when you help them plant trees at their schools then, what trees are you planting? Um, we, it's a lot of, it's a lot of trees, like an archie trees, a lot of, like a fruit trees yeah. and also the, the shade trees. Fantastic. It sounds like good work and Prince, keep up the good work because, you know, I think of all those children who don't, who haven't had sort of privileged backgrounds and they don't have all the lovely things that, you know, so many other children have got. I think it's really, really good to sort of encourage them to know about what's going on. Prince, very best of luck and thank you for joining us. Take thank care. You too. Thanks a lot. Um, Sarah, it seems that you're sort of spreading spreading what you know far and wide. Prince, is he, is he one of many people who you've been working with? Prince is one of several community members that have volunteered with me simply because they're passionate mm. about what they believe in and what, what they've learned, and they want to keep spreading that out so that other children get the same opportunities. And, and the teachers that, that you're working with, are they also interested, or I mean, is it is what you're telling the children? I'll be honest, it, it varies. Mm. Some teachers aren't interested over and beyond their jobs. Other teachers take, you know, so much interest in, in the individual children and in what we're teaching and take it forward into creating sustainable vegetable gardens at their schools. So, yes, we've had mixed responses, but the positive ones are very positive. Yeah. Moving back to Green Kids, which is what I think you've recently taken over as director, mm -hmm. what do you actually do there? The concept behind Green Kids is not only bringing environmental education into classrooms, but bringing children out of the classrooms to give them a hands-on bush experience. Because we believe once they've witnessed firsthand, once they've come to an understanding, then they'll really learn to appreciate and love the bush and wildlife. And this in itself is a form of anti-poaching education, where we're teaching children to love the bush, and that speaks volumes. So, you, I'm, you know, I'm thinking as a parent now, I mean, you're taking a whole bunch of little kids into the bush. How, firstly? Well, at this stage, what we're planning is short weekend trips of around 8 to 10 school children, ranging in age from around 12 to 13 years. And we take them for a weekend and we either go camping, we'll take them on a game drive, we'll teach them how to track the medicinal or traditional uses of trees, we'll take them on a little bush walk with a qualified game ranger, 
So just to give them a mini wildlife experience that will whet their appetites to know more. Is it a is it a one off? I mean, you know, it sounds like a lovely thing to do, but you know, perhaps once is is only just a taster. We have, at this stage we've identified a network of ten schools, and our environmental education we we aim to roll out once a week at each school. Obviously, the field trips will be as and when we get funding, but we're setting up a schedule where we can take a group of school children at least once a month, if not once a week, ideally. What's the response? What do the children have to say about it all? The children are incredibly, incredibly excited. The look on someone's face to see an elephant for the first time or to be, you know, to be exposed to all this knowledge that they just didn't have access to really, really is rewarding. These children are like sponges. They're beyond excited. And I suppose that they probably, even though they might live quite close to where all these animals are, probably wouldn't really have the opportunity otherwise. Is there a sort of the fear factor? I mean, you know, there's good and bad things about elephants. Very much so. I think especially things like elephants or hippopotamus, traditionally in rural villages, have only been a source of human-animal conflict, you know, with crop raiding or coming into the sugarcane or, you know, possibly being provided as meat for the villagers. So there hasn't really been any other knowledge thereof. So I think you always grow up, you know, believing what your parents told you or relying on other people's experiences. So until we've offered the the use of today other experiences, they can't really make up their own minds and get past the fear factor. Yeah, and hopefully this will, you'll be creating the sort of the anti-poaching conservationists of tomorrow. You're working with 10 schools, you mentioned funding there. How are you funding this? Because it's not nothing to get a bunch of children around anywhere. Yes. Our main funders are ProTrack Anti-Poaching Unit, which is located in Hutzbrate. So they are almost completely funding the Green Kids Initiative and any and all other funding we seek via social media to seek for private funding. Excellent. Sarah, the website, I know you're on Facebook, aren't you? Yes. So At this stage, we're busy working on our website, so I would probably direct people to Green Kids with a Z initiative on Facebook. Okay. That's the best option. So it's Green Kids, that's Green, G-R-W-E-N, Kids, K-I-D-Z, initiative yes. on Facebook. Yes, that's right. Well, I have liked you. The Enviro Show has liked you. And, <laughs> and I've put a link up there as well. So no, hopefully you'll get a whole lot of likes and hopefully you'll get a whole lot of money because it would really be nice if you could uh, expand from the 10 schools to many, many more because there's oh, lots of Oh, I hope so. The ripples would be incredible. Yeah, fabulous. Super. Well, enjoy the Timbavati and enjoy all the things that you do up there. Lovely. Sarah Bogues, thanks very much. Thank Take you, care. Nancy. Cheers. Bye. Sarah Berg's doing wonderful stuff up there in Limpopo in Hootsbrae. Kids, Green Kids Initiative uh, on Facebook if you'd like to find out a little bit more. Green Kids Initiative. And if you missed it, you can contact us in viro at safm.co.za. Well, we're moving back down the uh, back down the country a little bit, moving also slightly up the age ladder. Coming back into the heart of uh, Cape Town City Bowl where there's a group of like-minded people and they've all got together to start a farm called Aranyazist City Farm that uh, it's right there underneath the shadow of the mountain. I think their aim is to celebrate local food, culture and community. Well, we have one of the uh, founders on the line. She's also the spokesperson. She's got uh, dirt under her fingernails. I'm sure she's been scratching away amongst the cabbages. Cheryl Ozinski on the line. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Nancy. Are you, uh, I mean, as well as... Good evening to the listeners, although it's actually not even evening anymore. It it isn't. It's in the middle of the night, is it not? Truly, <laughs> um, Cheryl, am I right? Have you got to, you know soil under your fingernails? Are you not just a spokesperson and admin person? Do you, you know also... what? Um, I would have loved to have soil under my fingertips, but since starting this project in the beginning, 
in early November into December and January when we started digging, I was very involved in the farm. And you know what it's like when, you, when you're trying to run a project like this. You don't get to do the liquor things. Yeah. You are the one that has to look for the money, that has to try and engage with the volunteers, that has to help with a market day every Saturday that we've started to get more people to come to the farm and to make a bit of money for the project. And so I find myself increasingly not doing the things that I really love, but having to look at ways to generate income for the farm and also to generate awareness and educational programs for the community and for school groups. And I love that too. So I don't have enough dirt under my fingers, but many, many other people do. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hopefully you get to eat the product at the end of the day, so maybe it's not too bad. It's, it has a very much a heritage flavour. I mentioned there that you're all about uh, growing local food, local culture, local community uh, on a, almost a heritage site. Just explain exactly where you are. Yeah, so basically we're just below Table Mountain on an old bowling green that was very neglected. And the site dates back to the original farm that was established by a Dutch guy called Peter van Breda in about 1709. And he named the farm Aranjezicht, they say, because that means, obviously, view of orange in Dutch. The orange being either orange trees that grew so well in Aranjezicht at that time, or view of orange being the Aranje bastion of the castle that he could see from his farm. And, of course, he was a, a wealthy landowner. He had about 450 acres of land, which stretched all the way down Table Mountain, the farm was the largest farm in the Upper Table Valley. We have a half an acre, so just to compare in size. And he also was powerful because he owned the original springs, the springs that run down from Table Mountain every day containing large volumes of fresh water. And that was, of course, the original water supply for early Cape Town. And the city, in fact, had to pass an act in 1877 called the Oranges of Purchase Act, which enabled them to purchase land from Van Breda and build the Maltino Reservoir. And then they literally annexed the water from him from the springs to fill the reservoir, and uh, the farm died. And there's a wonderful book on the history of this farm called The Farm That Died mm. by Ralph Pentecost. And we, we want to now publish a book called The Farm That Lives. Good grief. Well, in amongst all doing all the admin and the uh, <clears throat> negotiating and finding money, it sounds like you've also been doing a bit of historical research. Well, you know, I mean, we're conducting tours, and uh, when one does that, then you have to go and read and research. And, I mean, this is the incredible thing about this farm, is that, you know, 300 years ago there was such a, a vibrant farm, and the people of Cape Town could just literally come walk up the road and buy fresh vegetables that were grown nutritiously. And in a way, we've, we've come so far away from that. You know, our yeah. food is not that great anymore. Our produce is grown with pesticides. And, and we're trying to inculcate uh, a feeling amongst the community that there is an alternative food system, yeah. that yeah. you can grow your own food that's healthy, that you, you can begin to educate people about what's in their food and where their food comes from. And, and I think there's a whole movement around the world that is yearning to once again eat nutritious 
food and to to understand much more about our food system. Yes, I mean, you may not be able to feed the whole of Cape Town. I mean, in, in some ways, it's it's symbolic, and I love it that you've got tours. In fact, I was speaking to a group of people the other day who are busy coming along to do a tour of your farm, which is which is a very nice thing because it it means it's somewhere for people to go and and be inspired. It's almost like a sort yeah. of a, a and living... you know, it's incredible how this has affected the community. I mean, people are saying they haven't met their neighbours before, and then on Saturdays when we have the volunteer days and the market, we're attracting about 2,000 people and they come out and they are there with their kids in prams and toddlers running around and drinking coffee and eating wonderful cupcakes and other things that we sell and buying fresh vegetables and it's, it's been amazing to see this incredible community, that mm. spirit that's, that's built. So, you know, when people say, can you build community by planting carrots? Well, I think we, we're really seeing something of that nature developing here. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned also that you're doing tours. I mean, you're no stranger to tourism yourself, certainly. But um, also, you're no stranger to the fact that next year it's the world design capital here in Cape Town. I'm just looking at a picture of the, of the um, what do you call the OZCF. And it's very beautifully designed. Uh, yeah, you know, and there have been so many people out. that have been involved. You know, Tanya de Villiers, our landscape, uh, landscape architect, and Mark Stead, our creative director, they've taken inspiration from early Dutch farms in the Cape and play, in places like the company's gardens and Neverland. And this garden is absolutely magnificent. And, you know, we, we've paid attention to, to the aesthetic in a way that it will create attention and it, it will be it is a world design capital project we have been nominated as a world design capital project and we're very very proud of the aesthetic um, and people are beginning to realize that growing vegetables is a beautiful thing one doesn't have to plant roses one no, can no, plant indeed you can't. broccoli and cabbage and you can yes. you can show people you know you, you can be yeah it can be beautiful even more beautiful than than other plants or certainly than grass and uh, you know yes yes the lawns that need to be mowed i can i can right. hear you waxing lyrical but you know i'm thinking that this has not been an easy ride uh, i'm i'm sure the soil wasn't all that it might have been i think you've had uh, you've had porcupines yeah. and squirrels and all sorts of things. i mean uh, you know and then some i think there's been it's been quite heavy going it's 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 never easy to do something like this, um, Nancy. The, you know, our farmers Mario Graziani and Josephine Fitzmaurice, they've really been at the forefront of trying to cope with all the elements. And I think one gains new respect for farmers, certainly when when you're trying to grow vegetables and the squirrels and the geese are coming, and the soil we we inherited from the bowling green was absolutely dead. There was not an earthworm, not a ladybird in the soil and now thankfully we're seeing life again in the soil by treating the soil with uh, bokashi which is a, a compost catalyst that uh, the residents use to bring us all their kitchen waste we've got an earthworm farm that was made for us by mary murphy and we adding comp uh, earthworm tea and vermiculture to the soil and planting quite a lot of plants um, like mustard seed that give nitrogen back into the soil. And it's going to really take almost, I think, about one or two years before we, we see the soil coming into itself. 
You mentioned a book there. It, it almost seems like that you could be putting together a bit of a handbook. I mean, maybe not so many communities could put together something as beautiful as you've got here, but on a smaller scale it's possible. Is, is there a chance that at some stage there may we, be We would love to do that. To. Already we are being asked mm, by sure. many other communities in Cape Town. We've been to the claremont Rondebosch area where they have a bowling green that's neglected. In fact, they have several bowling greens right on the Lisbeck River that uh, they are considering turning into a bowl of greens. Yes. And then we've been to Tolbach, and we've been asked by residents in Boerkaap to come and talk to them. And there's a, there's a network of projects like this. Seed, for example, in Mitchell's Plain, run by Lee Brown, Abelimi Bezakaya, that uh, has been run by Rob Small in the townships in Kailicha and, and other Cape places on the Cape Flats. And, and those projects are really about poverty alleviation, Abalimi Bezakai especially, whereas our project is about teaching people about food and food growing. And it's, it's much more about building community through food than, than for example, what, what Rob is trying to do, which is equally important. And the network of all of these projects trying to share information is critical. And to work with the city of Cape Town to bank land for urban agriculture and to support more such projects in the city of Cape Town into the future. You know, there was quite a lot of controversy about whether or not Heritage Day should also be Bride Day. And I'm proposing that perhaps it would be better if it were growing day if it were you know people could just get down and start planting something day may be more useful than bride day having said that i'm sure bride day is lots of fun but talking of heritage day uh tuesday the 24th of september uh ozcf is going to be open you're yes, having an open open day between 10 and four o'clock that's correct and uh traditionally our neighborhood watch which uh, has been great to in support of the farm our neighborhood watch traditionally holds a wonderful event on the 24th of September in Homestead Park right next to the farm. And we have wonderful things that people can do. You can meet the volunteer guides and you can tour the Aranjazak City Farm. You can participate in guided walking tours of history-filled Aranjazak by qualified South African tourism guides. We have a large food and flower market under the historic oaks. We've got lots of brides from ostrich bourgeois rolls to fillet and chicken ciabattas topped with homemade mayo and slow-roasted tomatoes and rocket. We've got farm-fresh veggies, of course. We have two bands that are playing that day, the Andrew Ford Jazz Quartet and the Kolonova Balkan Band. We have a snake lady. We have a magician. We have the very popular Zoo to You petting zoo mm. and... Uh, and the list goes on. I and think, it just goes on. And then, of course, Cheryl, all the community gonna... organizations yeah, yeah. are coming. So the well, different think... neighborhood watchers will be there. The police, the South African police force will be there. The soccer clubs will be there. So this is an event where everybody is coming along to to just show a community spirit. Well, there we go. I'm going to suggest if anybody's listening right now, they go along there too. If you're lucky enough to be in Cape Town on Heritage Day, <clears throat> get yourself to the Rangersish City Farm and say that you heard all about it right here on the Enviro Show. Lovely, my dear. Thank you very much. I'm going to give out the website, which is www.ozcf.co.za if you'd like to find out more. Otherwise, just go there and have a look. Cheryl, lovely. Stay warm. Thank you. And you. Take care. Uh, Cheryl Lezinski there and talking all about the Oranges City Farm, which certainly sounds absolutely wonderful. Actually, it is wonderful. I've driven past it and it looks just too super. Hopefully, um, we'll get there again.
You're listening to the Enviro Show. Stay with us. The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. It is indeed while we're moving away from the uh, slopes of Table Mountain and wonderful growing pieces of land, all sorts of lovely things there. We're moving on to uh, actually the coast because uh, coming up this weekend, it is in fact the uh, national, it's the Coastal Cleanup Day on the 21st. It's also National Recycling Day. It's National Cleanup Week. And if ever you were thinking of cleaning up your neck of the woods, now is the time to do it. Well, we have, talking of uh, coastal cleanup, we have on the line John Kisser. He's from Plastic South Africa. And uh, I think he is, in fact, the environmental manager for coastal provinces with Plastic South Africa. I got him on the line. Hi, John. Hi, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. So, Coastal Cleanup Day, I suppose we shouldn't just be really thinking about it uh, just one day of the week, but it's not just Coastal Cleanup Day here in South Africa, it's all across the world. Yes, no, it's the 28th uh, um, International Coastal Cleanup. It oh, okay. started in 28 years ago in Texas. Uh, a lady walking down uh, the beach and uh, she got irritated by the large amount of uh, plastic items lying on the beach. Uh, she started a movement. Next year, uh, after that, it uh, the whole state joined her and, uh, and a few of the other states. And then from there on, it just blossomed under a organization called Ocean Conservancy. Uh, we took on uh, the uh, effort 18 years ago. Uh, we've been doing it now for 18 years, mm-hmm. taking part in it every year. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's an awareness project, but it's also uh, what makes it different from your the usual uh, cleanups that people do on a monthly basis and weekly basis. And I must say, in all these years, I've seen an increase in those. People people want to do something good. And um, uh, it's an audited cleanup. So we audit uh, in the citizen science way uh, the material that is picked up so that we can in that way see what is the problem what what is lying out there and uh, you know especially from us from the industry side what can we do about that problem okay so it's audited so it's mm. not just a matter of cleaning up it's cleaning up and saying okay where's all this stuff coming from and i i would um hazard a guess that a lot of it is probably plastic oh yeah no uh, any I mean, can you give us a sort of percentage uh well depending on the on the area it's usually 90 percent 90 percent obviously uh, if you do underwater cleanups it tends to be a little bit then slanted towards glass or either metal uh but uh, when it's uh, lying on the beach it's uh, mainly plastic gosh um so so what does that tell you at plastic south africa well um I'm not going to be a, I'm not a spin doctor for the plastics industry. I'm an environmentalist. And for me, uh, I, I like a, a good, honest debate regarding the issue of plastics. And a, a lot of my colleagues overseas, they, 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 they're very, um, they, they don't like plastics at all. But, you know, we can't live without the material anymore. It's, it's if you just sit in your car, you're surrounded with plastics. It makes the car light. It's it's a safe way. It's a good way. It's a it's an affordable way of of um, of packaging, making sure that uh, foodstuffs stay long on the shelf and it gets to you from the farm. It's it's good, uh, but unfortunately, that's also it's ill because it's cheap. Uh, people tend to throw it away, and then the other property that it's got, it's long lasting. So mm-hmm. if you throw it away, it flows down to the sea, and that's where it ends up, and it stays there for a long, long time. 
You know, I've heard it said that it's not it's not plastic that litters, it's people that litter. Um, so I suppose it's not the, the fault of the plastic, it's the fault of people who are managing it. When Just going back to your auditing situation and, and the plastic that you find uh, that's on the beach, what is it? I, we've spoke to a guy, and I'm sure you've heard this story about these two guys who went to remote islands all around the world measuring the amount of plastic and the, or measuring the amount of the litter that they mm-hmm. found, and a large proportion of it were flip-flops. Well, I, 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 my work experience started as um, a, a person that lived on islands for, for, for many years. And that's really? where I got interested in plastics uh, and especially the pollution coming onto the islands. You know, it was my, I would walk on a beach and I would see a bottle saying it, it's available in this flavor. And I, I thought, oh, I can't wait to get off. I'd love to taste it in that, in, in that way. Now, flip-flops, um, I was at a, a conference in March, and um, uh, there is a possibility that uh, because flip-flops are so cheap and it floats, it's being used as an aggregate, uh, fish aggregate. So they make a whole lot of them um, uh, into a raft, put that out at sea, and obviously then fish collect underneath that. And that's a wonderful way then to catch fish. There's a lot of fish aggregates out at sea. And unfortunately, a lot of these um, um, netted uh, uh, sandals, flip-flops break. And then that's why you sometimes find, uh, and I know Hank Bowman, Professor Hank Bowman of the University of Northwest, he found an an island off Mauritius. And he said all he could find was just flip-flops. So have I got this right then? Are you saying that people actually gather a whole lot together because they are cheap, string them together in whatever way, and, and float them out. Yes, really? yes. It's, a, it's, it's a scary thing what people sometimes do to, um, to fish. Um, uh, up in Woodhull, uh, Fourmouth area in, in the States, they, they're using uh, these uh, uh, plastic toilets that you see uh, around everywhere. Uh, they throw them into the sea, weight it down, and that becomes a, a wonderful trap for uh, crabs and uh, and lobsters so uh, <laughs> sometimes people people don't realize what they actually do you know they uh, by, by throwing these things away it, it becomes a wonderful home or a, a wonderful place for, for fish to shield underneath yeah. but once it breaks up it becomes a, a major problem yeah well I guess if you're mm. hungry and if you and the fish stocks are becoming more and more scarce and if you can find a, an innovative way to catch them I suppose who can be blamed? I, I, I don't know where we start with that. I mean, I don't know how one starts with, uh, with finding alternative methods of fishing. But just let's get back to the plastic mm. itself, because we, we know that it's there. It's there in sort of large quantities because it's very um, has a, a long lifespan. It's going to be there for some time. But it does nonetheless break down. And I think that's one of the issues is that yes. it breaks down. It becomes smaller and smaller. Yeah. That's a, that's a major problem at the moment. We we have noticed uh, through the a few years, not just us, uh, but internationally, that micro debris, microplastics, uh, smaller than than five millimeters, ten millimeters, that has been on the on on, on a very big increase, um, and uh, that's due to plastics breaking up while it's at sea. It's obviously weather conditions, uh, etc. Et and uh, that's that's a, a, a problem to us and. Just, just like you said uh, regarding fish, uh, then it becomes part of the food web. Uh, fish and other birds see it as 
as a food source. They eat it, and unfortunately, it can have that ability of making a animal feel as if it's full. It's just like fiber that you would eat in your stomach, and then they have a decrease in their condition, and sometimes they can die from it. And I think a lot of people that have Google that have seen the the Lanyard, the Laziard, um, albatrosses of the of the Pacific Ocean. Um, um, opened up and you just see plastic bottle yeah. tops and stuff in them, yeah. Yeah, and I believe that mm. turtles very often mistake yes. big plastic bags for food and, and suffer as a result. The content in plastic itself, whether it's broken down or still whole, uh, can't be very healthy. I mean, there must be quite a lot of a fair amount of chemicals. Is it? Yes. What is it? Is it petrol? What, what is... Um. I'm sometimes um, I find it funny that a lot of people don't know that plastics is an oil product. I, I ask that question to many school groups, and I, I get this this, this look of um, comes from trees, and obviously uh, that's not true. It's it, it's an oil product, uh, and being a chemical, so it, 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 there is other chemicals added to it. Uh, these chemicals are obviously then. Um, taken into by fish, but then one must realize there are far more other chemicals being pumped out at sea. Um, and the other scary thing that uh, small microplastic pieces have is that it collects other chemicals uh, that uh, gets pumped into the sea. That's why if you if you go to a website of a Professor Takada, Sikhov uh, is, 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 is doing research on what we call persistent organic pollutants, POPs, uh, within microplastics, um, the amount of dildrin and DDT um, in the uh, microplastics on the South African coastline is the highest in the world, and that's obviously because we do still use a lot of DDT in, in combating malaria. Uh, that flows down the rivers and uh, obviously then collects within these microplastics at sea. Mm. Uh, you know, it's got it's an oil-based product. Mm. I mean, and we know that plastic is quite cheap, which is why there's such a proliferation of it. Oil is not cheap, um, so I'm sort of wondering how how that can be so. But is there not a way of making plastic differently, and can we not try to manufacture something that's less harmful? Uh, unfortunately, not. You know, there are bioplastics. There are, but then you've got to plant material. You've got to plant material to to obtain that cellulose to make a a uh, uh, to make a plastic. And I think South Africa, which is which is actually a very dry country, you you just spoke to Cheryl about that uh, about uh, the hard conditions that farmers have to live mm -hmm. under. We can't plant plants just to make packaging material from it. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, it also has got its ills. Um, uh, pesticides, etc., have to be used to make that, uh, to, 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 to plant those plants and keep those plants growing. Um, and, uh, you know, technology has, has zoomed up so much that plastics actually is a very safe product. You know, there's a lot of uh, urban myths going around about water bottles and things like that. We totally unfounded. There are some truly nothing is perfect, uh, but at the end of the day, it is a very safe product to use, and it is the cheapest, best way to do it. And unfortunately, in a world where more and more people are living, we need a safe, uh, affordable packaging material to to contain all that food. Yeah, and we sort of need mm. like great big filter nets to go and filter all that stuff out from the sea because, it, you know, the more the sea creatures eat it, the more we are going to eat it, and we are 
gradually not doing ourselves any favour. Just if I could just ask you one last yes. thing, John. I'm, I'm very fascinated to know what you were doing on all these desert islands. But <laughs> talking talking of coast, you know, we've all seen the pictures of the Costa Concordia being uh, righted after all this time. How long has it been there? Eighteen months, is it? Mm -hmm. I think. Yes. Um, you know, all sorts of things must have been floating out of that ship. Of course, uh, is it like all vessels? Yeah. I I was on Bird Island uh, years ago when the Oceanas went down, and within. Uh, uh, I think it was three weeks we started finding the first life life buoys and, and, and seating covers uh, arriving at Bird Island. And that was, that was a few hundred kilometers away. That, that uh, ship went down in, in, in the, on the old Transkei coastline. And Bird Island is, is basically next to Port Elizabeth. And uh, material was starting to arrive from the Oceanus onto, onto that island. And we were starting to collect uh, material for our, for our furniture in the house, yeah. Yeah. And so what were you doing on this island? Well, I, I, I did research on, on gannets on, on, uh, on Bird Island and uh, all, um, problem animal control. And uh, I was the first conservator on the island. So I removed all the feral, uh, all the European rabbits from the island because they were competing with the uh, rosier terns. Uh, now the rosier tern population on the island has zoomed up and it's got a very stable uh, penguin colony uh, because the African penguin and rabbits do compete for burrows. And uh, you, you, you can't have an animal which has been introduced uh, on, an, on, an, on an area uh, where they have then a negative impact on the indigenous animals. Mm. African penguins and um, rabbits competing for burrows. It sounds mm. like the beginning of a children's book. <laughs> just, if, just very, very last question, then mm. I really will let you go. Uh, as somebody who's obviously been in conservation for a long time, do you, uh, are you feeling optimistic? Do you, how do you feel? Uh, yes. I do, I do. I, I, I must say, I, I look at um, the attitude of people around me, um, the general public. I have seen um, uh, there's a major shift uh, in people are caring. Uh, I'm looking at the amount of volunteers and volunteers that don't expect a T-shirt or expect a cool drink for taking part in a cleanup. That that out of their own want to come and take part of it. And, and that's not just uh, for the international coastal cleanup, but through the whole year, like I mentioned earlier, there's more and more monthly and weekly cleanups happening. Yeah. And it's, it might be small teams. It might be 20, 25 people, but it's dedicated people. They don't expect anything. They're not waiting for government to help them. Government has got, its, has got a lot of other work to do, uh, more, far more critical f uh, things to do than, than, than cleanup up beaches at the moment and um, and I'm, 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 that is the one positive thing also the other positive thing is there are certain types of micro debris that we have seen a major drop in and that's because industry has taken responsibility of it and then um, uh, I'm, you mentioned uh, that old saying of uh, plastic don't pollute people do but uh, sometimes People can't help not polluting yeah. because a product is designed in such a way that if you pull that tab, there is a piece of plastic that comes off. Comes off. And I must say, industry has also realized we have to design materials so that that little piece of plastic doesn't come off or that the, uh, the bottle top that comes off is recyclable and there isn't this little uh, PVC uh, plastic liner on the inside. So... I am I'm seeing a major shift uh, in the design of plastics to make it not just recyclable, but make sure that it doesn't become a pollutant. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, what a story. What a lot of stories. John, lovely. Thank you so much. I'm going to give out the website. It's www.plasticsinfo.co.za if you'd like to know more about Plastics SA and what they do. And if you want to get cleaning up your part of the coast, do it. Just do it. Thanks so much, John. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Nancy. Bye-bye. John Kiza, in fact, he is with Plastics SA. Stay with us. The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Well, finally on the Enviro Show tonight, we do. In fact, we have managed to get hold of our, our, our revelers from the Best Recycled Product Award Ceremony, which is happening in Joburg right now. And we have also from Plastics SA, in fact, we have Doe Stain on the line. Hi, Doe. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Is it a wonderful evening happening up there? Well, it's a wonderful evening in Johannesburg. Uh, I don't know if it's running in Cape Town, but yeah, it's a lovely day. So tell us a little bit about the uh, the Best Recycled Product Competition or the awards ceremony. What was the object? Well, it started four years ago, you know, to, to make recycling really work and make it economically viable. The end product is where it actually starts. And that will drive the force for people to design products made from recycled material, for the collectors to, to collect it, because they get paid for the material they collect. So the drive was really to come up with innovative products that will stimulate the collection and recycling of plastics. So this South African Plastic Recycling Organization competition in its fourth year now is really the retailers getting together with products, the converters, the recyclers all working together and come up with some beautiful products made from recycled plastics. So they're products, they're not artworks. I mean, they're actual workable products, are they? I don't know. They're real art, uh, not artwork. There are some artwork, and um, Mongani is standing next to me. He's one of those creative guys um, that is one of the guys that's hopefully be a winner, a winner tonight as well. The winners haven't been announced, announced yet. It will be in, in the media tomorrow. Uh, they'll probably take another 10 minutes before they're going to decide who the winners are. But it's really from wheelbarrow wheels to to spades, to buckets, to furniture. Um, it's really, you know, in this country, we have to be creative yeah. in our recycling industry. We don't incinerate, we don't do energy from waste yet. Uh, so whatever we collect and process in recycling, we have to find the end market. Okay. And, and that stimulates the economy in the recycling industry. There's, you know, there's 210 companies in the plastic industry uh, buying waste from collectors and reprocess it back into a raw material. And they actually find an end market, otherwise yeah. what, it's no use doing it then. Yeah, no, absolutely. You've got Bongani standing by. Is he, he's not, he hasn't been announced as a winner, but he's one of the the people who've been doing the research. Can we have a quick word? Well, he's, he's one of the finalists. I'll give it oh, to Bongani. Okay. Hi, Bongani. Hi, how are you? I, be right. I believe that the winners are only going to be announced in another 10 minutes, so I imagine everybody's biting their fingernails waiting to hear what's happening. Bongani, firstly, what's your surname? And secondly, what have you made? What have you been responsible for? Okay, my surname is Kumalo. Okay. Yes. Uh, I made a recycle art, but okay. uh, it's a 3D, it's sculptures, other one it's a ship. A ship? Or a sheep? Yes, in a flower pot, a oh, sheep. Oh, a sheep, okay. Livestock, yes. Oh, a sheep, okay, okay. Yes. And it's made out of what? Uh, it's plastics, uh, but it's it's TT, I think it's number seven. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, oh, is that is that the type, particular type of plastic? Or your multi-layers. Multi-layers. Okay, okay, so that's a bit, that sounds very technical. So that's a particular type of plastic. 
Where did you, I can, I can hear you're being prompted by Doe there as to exactly what the plastic is. Where did you find it? Did you, did you know what you were looking for and where did you get it? Normally I go to the landfill or uh, this wet, uh, I go to, yeah, yes, to, to let me feel uh, Yes, by the centers. Okay, okay. And collect, yes. And so, do you know exactly what you're looking for? I mean, I'm trying to get a, a, a picture of your sheep there. Is it, um, are they all the same sort of bits of plastic that you're looking for? It's different type of plastics. So what do you do? Collect the plastic and then work with the material that you've got to see what you can create? Oh, it's poly... Polypropylene? Polypropylene. <laughs> so there's a lot of different plastics going on here. The end result here, Bongani, never mind what the sort of type of plastic is, but are you, are you an artist then? Is this what you do for a living? Yes, yes. Uh, Yes, I'm doing this for a living. And will you sell this item at the end of the day? I mean, do you go to galleries and sell it? Where do you sell your stuff? Normally to these plastic companies. Yes. Yeah, because, because you're doing exactly what they need somebody to do, which is sort of clean up after them and make something beautiful out of it. Well, Bongani, very, very best of luck. I mean, I, I feel very sort of uh, on tender hooks for you because I know that any minute the winners are going to be announced. Going to let you go. Go back to your seat and fingers crossed that you win. Give me back to Doe because I just want to get the last details from him. So very best of oh. luck. Thank you. Take care. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank I'll you. Let thank you give it to him. Okay. Is, is Doe there? Yes, hi. So, hi. So, so you've been telling Bongani exactly all the, about the different types of uh, different types of plastic. It sounds it sounds like there should be a, a dedicated shop or a website where you can buy all these things. What will happen to all these end products? Where can people a see them, b buy them? Yeah, I think that's a very good idea, and that's something that I'm thinking about as. You know, we're the Australian for cleanup SA week. Uh, we manage the website as well as as well as recycling day, which is tomorrow. And um, so we've got two websites: one for cleanups, one for recycling. And I think a very good idea is to maybe start building up a database of these wonderful products that uh, the community is making. You know, we've got guys making sculptures, we've got guys making chairs, we've got guys painting with plastics, um, like Richard Butelezi is quite world known now for his paintings with plastics, you know, plastic bags. Incredible stuff. And I think it's a good idea to, to start exposing these materials because it's, it's reuse of these materials. Well, they're going to let you get back to the event because I'm sure any minute they're going to be announcing it. So that was Bongani Komalo, and he's definitely one in the running. I think he's from Soweto himself, is he? I, I don't know. I okay. think so, yes. Okay. Well, may the best man and or woman win. And if anybody would like <laughs> to find out more, is it plasticsinfo.co.za? Is that the website? That is correct, yes. Excellent. Lovely. Super. Thank you very much. Enjoy it for us. Thank you, Nancy. Take Have care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Doe Stainwell, obviously having a wonderful evening there. And don't we all know a whole lot more about plastic right now? And uh, if you would like to find out a little bit more about the winners, it sounds like it probably will be on the website tomorrow or watch the press or watch this space, as they say, www.plasticsinfo.co.za. And if there's anything you've missed, contact us in viro at safm.co.za or find us on Facebook. Albert Clarsen, thank you so much. And uh, Stephen Kirker, thank you so much for waiting. And I hope you have a wonderful programme. And I'm Nancy Richards, and I'll be back again on Sunday with uh, SAFM Literature. Over to you, Stephen.